0: Verge podcast with Neil Litton. Neil, we've got David Johnston on the show today. Tell us about David.
1: I'm excited. I'm incredibly excited to welcome Dave to the show today. Uh, Dave is an inventor, entrepreneur, and expert in genomics with a track record of bringing new medical technologies to the clinic and to the commercial marketplace. He is currently an entrepreneur in residence at Illumina Ventures and is the founder and CEO of a new company called Gigamune. Gigamune is developing a suite of novel technologies for in vivo targeted gene delivery, Uh, So Dave and I will get into that. Uh, Previously, uh, Dave was the founder and CEO of GigaGen, which was acquired by Griffles for $143 million just last year. Uh, And prior to that, Dave was the founder and, uh, and was on the founding team, excuse me, and was the COO of Natera. Which went public in 2015 and is currently trading at a four billion dollar market cap valuation. So, Dave has a ton of experience as a serial entrepreneur, company builder, uh, deep deep expertise in genomics, bioinformatics, uh, and I'm excited to talk to him about his entrepreneurial journey and his new company, Gigamune.
0: What's the problem Gigamune's trying to solve?
1: Yeah, so GigaMune is really trying to solve this problem of efficient delivery of uh, cells and genes to the human body. So one of the bottlenecks is the specificity to which uh, gene therapies can be targeted to specific cell and tissue types. Um, And so there's a variety of different approaches that are using lentiviral vectors or AAV, which are adeno-associated viral vectors, Um, There's also non-viral based approaches like lipid nanoparticles or LNPs. Those are the approaches that the recent slate of uh, mRNA COVID vaccines used to deliver mRNA to target cells, for example. Um, What Dave is doing is actually trying to deliver his therapy in vivo. So instead of taking cells out of the human body and somehow engineering or manipulating them um, and you know, p- putting forth the, the viral vector and the payload, you know, ex vivo or outside the human body Dave's technology and what gig is trying to do is do all this in vivo through a much higher degree of specificity. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of sort of technical nuances, but I think it's really exciting and it has the, has the potential to really sort of supplant what is being done in many ways today.
0: Dave's a, a serial entrepreneur. How do you think that might shape his approach at Gigamune?
1: I think it probably dramatically shapes his approach. And actually, you know, Danny, that's a question I'm, I'm going to pose to him. But, you know, he he's sort of been there and done that before. And there's no guarantee, you know, the new endeavor is going to be successful. But I think he probably has a lot of lessons that he's learned through his time at Notera, through his time at GigaGen, from, you know, initial, you know, ideation and building the company through scaling through, you know, exit. So I think there's probably a lot of learnings that he can bring to uh, Gigamune these days. And I'm excited to to dive into those. And I think it's both from, you know, the company building, you know, social aspect, right? Culture, team, you know, all those types of things. But I think also from just a pure technology standpoint, I'm sure he's seen a lot of pitfalls, you know, what works what doesn't work and which will allow him to really hone in on what to focus on as he builds Gigamune. Well, if you're all set, I'm all set. Let's do it, Danny. David, thanks so much for joining us. I am incredibly excited to have you on the show today.
2: Uh, Happy to be here.
1: So we are going to talk about your new company, Gigimmune, and your vision for in vivo gene delivery to treat cancer and autoimmune conditions. Before we get into that, though, I do want to touch on the two prior companies you founded and successfully exited, I might add. You were the founding COO of Natera, which IPO'd in 2015 and currently has a market cap of $4 billion. After Natera, you founded and were the CEO of Gigagen, which was acquired by Griffles for $142 million last year. Um, Can you start by talking about the technology underlying those two companies, how you came up with those ideas, and if there was a common thread or underlying theme between those two businesses?
2: Yeah, so uh, I helped start Natera uh, uh, during my postdoc at Stanford. And, and uh, what I did at Stanford was a lot of high throughput genomics. Uh, so around that time, the first uh, high throughput sequencing methods were coming out. Illumina was just getting started with their sequencing. Um, it was really an exciting time trying to think about the different applications that sequencing and genomics could be used for. And one early low-hanging fruit was uh, for what we call non-invasive diagnostics. So this is basically you take a blood draw from uh, some kind of patient, and then you, you deep sequence and really deconvolute uh, different kinds of signals in the blood. Uh, Natera was involved in uh, this for uh, non-invasive prenatal diagnostics. We also did it for IVF. Um, and later on, actually, after I left, uh, Natera got into uh, cancer diagnostics as well from blood. And uh, during that time in Natera, I started getting really interested in, in single cell work. And, and, and actually, it was a really kind of obscure thing that I was doing with single cell in Natera. Um, we, we had to, for our, for our prenatal diagnostics, diagnostics and reproductive diagnostics, we were doing a lot of single sperm analysis. And one of my jobs was to to pick single sperm from subjects and in a little micro needle and put them into tubes. <laughs> it was it, it, nobody else wanted to do it. Uh, eventually, I trained somebody else, and it was. And, I, and when I was when I was sitting there, it was just one of those things where I was like, oh, "There's got to be a better way to do this," right? Kind of thing, which is which is where inventions often happen. And and so uh I knew other people had been working on droplet microphilitics and and I think everybody was sort of casting around for really good applications at the time. Some people were doing digital uh droplet PCR, but I, I you know, I, I, I thought it would be interesting if we could combine the single cell challenges with droplet microphilitics. And um so I, I got excited about that and, and we, you know, we had launched several products and it was a good time to, to leave, uh, Natera cause it was a lot about just sales at that point And that wasn't my job was to, uh, and so, so I, so I left and started, started gigagen and really the whole idea there was let's, let's use droplet microfluidics plus genomics to, to do single cell, uh, Analysis And, and uh, this actually predated 10x genomics. I'm sure some people listening are like, that sounds like 10x genomics. And yes, it totally does. <laughs> and and we, we, we were doing this stuff before 10x, um, but we kind of went a different route. Uh, 10x went the route of, uh, I guess, research tools and have been really successful, kind of way more successful than I ever thought they, they would have been. But um, I just was always interested in translational work. So, so, you know, the best medical applications I could find is always what really gets me excited. And so that's where I steered GigaGen. And um, what we found was there was this neat uh, application where we could use the microfluidics to capture entire immune systems, which are very diverse. Everybody has, knows all about this stuff now because of COVID but um, immune systems are very diverse. There's, you you know, tens or hundreds of millions of different kinds of antibodies in in immune systems. And so what we could do is use microfluidics to capture the antibody sequences. And we actually made that into a drug. So um, uh, basically around the time that COVID uh, started, We had really matured our technology to the point where we were looking for our killer application (laughs) and covid kind of gave it to us um because you know as soon as as soon as the pandemic came out people were talking about convalescent serum and as soon as people started talking about convalescent serum i said well i can make that uh using my technology uh in a recombinant way so basically, capture all the antibody sequences and then make it in a bioreactor, um, just like monoclonals are made. And so we we did that, and then um, it was just a great sort of in the right place at the right time. We got it into the clinic, and um, we ended up getting bought by a by a longtime partner, uh, Griffles, for a for a for a nice exit. Um, and none of that would happen if it weren't for pandemic. So, you know, I think. Um, uh, if, if there's one thing I've learned throughout the years, it's that, like, to be a good entrepreneur, you have to be very, uh, uh, y- you know, willing to grasp opportunities when, they, when they're in front of you, you know, just kind of go for it when something's in front of you. And I think for the pandemic, that was a lot of good entrepreneurs said, well, you know, what can we do? And, you know, how do we make a difference, right? It's, it's a combination of how do you make a difference and then how do you really grasp something that's a great um, business opportunity? Um, so, I guess kind of moving to, to fast fast forward to GigAmune, um, you know, I worked for uh, Griffles, the buyer of GigAgen, my second company, for a while, about a year. And um, uh, before uh, we got GigAgen bought, we spun out a bunch of technologies and intellectual property that the buyer wasn't interested in. And that was where GigAmune came from. That's why it's got a similar name and <laughs> it's a little confusing. But, um, uh, all those, uh, technologies that we spun out had to do with cell therapies. You know, this is just stuff that Griffles doesn't work on at all. Um, and so I started thinking about, you know, what could we do with those technologies? And i talked to a lot of experts and what the experts said was, uh, well, really a lot of investors, you know, they, they said, you know, it's really hard to get cell therapies funded these days because it's so darn expensive. Uh, particularly making manufacturing systems, uh, uh, just scaling that it's, you know, it's really expensive before you even get to your clinical studies. Um, So I started thinking about how we could solve that problem. Really, you know, again, I'm always trying to keep my ear to the ground and solve problems that, uh, that others are telling me are out there and think about ways that are a little bit divergent from, you know, uh, more conventional solutions that, that other people are thinking about. Um, so this is kind of a long-winded intro, so I guess I'll stop there, and I'll, I'll let you uh, get, get, get get another question in.
1: Yeah, no, Dave, that, that that's super helpful. I, I do want to circle back to a, a point that you made about sort of being an entrepreneur and, and being opportunistic. You know, I, I'm always fascinated by the entrepreneurial journey. So I, did, I just did want to, wanted to go back and ask you a question along those lines. Could you could you talk about your experience with Terra and, and Gigajin? you know, going from idea to building the companies through to a successful exit? I mean, that's just that's such an amazing journey to do once, let alone twice. And now you're you know, now you're attempting to do it for for a third time. Could you just, just sort of talk about some of the, the pitfalls or lessons learned or things that you're bringing to your new endeavor.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, am at a point in my career where, uh, people st- have started reaching out to me for advice, you know, uh, because I've, yeah, like you said, I've done it twice. I've been successful. Um, now I'm doing a third. And so, uh, younger entrepreneurs or people trying to move over, over into entrepreneurship have, have, uh, you know, reached out for advice. And, and one of the first things I would say, which kind of, I think gets people you know, maybe a little flustered as I say, you know, can you do anything else? (laughs) 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 Because, because, you know, being an entrepreneur is really hard. And it's also involves long periods of time where you're not making any money. And there's a lot of doubt, right? And so my, my, first, my first comment is just like, well, because if you can do something else, you should consider that because, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's sort of a tough prospect, and, you know. And then I'll ask, you know, do you have one or two years of money to, to just sort of, you know, fund your food and your rent or, or mortgage or whatever you have, you know, and, and how are you going to do that? Right. It's not it, there, there's I, I, I can't think of too many true entrepreneurship journeys where people just started and then day one, they've got a great salary and funding, you know, you have to go out and do a lot of search and, and whatnot. Um, so, and then I think, and so that's one thing. And, and, and then the other thing I always say is, you know, what's your, do you have any kind of, you know, secret weapons? Like what, what is your real superpower or skill that that's going to differentiate you? Cause, okay, you gotta, you gotta, if you have that hustle, right, once we pass that mark, you have the hustle, right, and you're willing to, like, work for nothing, work for, work for equity for a while, right, Um, for that dream, uh, there's a lot of those people too, right, and so, so what is it about you that makes you amazing? Um, You know, uh, some people are really good deal makers, some people are, you know, really good at going out and raising money, some people are really good Uh, at something technical, you know, maybe they're an artificial intelligence person or something like that. Um, But you have to think carefully about what is that thing that you're really good at. And that's not only important to sort of focus on that. And when you talk to investors and when you, you know, you're thinking about building a product, what are you going to be better at than anyone else? You know, that's really key. But also when you're building a team, you have to think about, um, you know, who are you bringing into a team? you know, uh, so I thought about that. for example, at Gigagen, I, you know, I know I'm a, I'm a technical founder. Um, I often have my head down and I want to work on the technology stuff. And so, you know, in that case, I, I found a co-founder who is gregarious and, and really outgoing and, and, you know, is out there at lots of meetings, shaking hands and, and whatnot. And, and so he was a really good um, co-founder because we rounded each other out really well. He didn't have any technical skill, right? So he he needed somebody like me. Um, so I think those are those are kind of the big things. Thinking about team, thinking about you know what are you willing to put into it, and then um, you know being willing to 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 uh, be opportunistic, like like you said, I think that's really important. You gotta you gotta look for the opportunities, and and you have to figure out how to make the most of them in a really unique way.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that's all great advice. I mean, I sort of think of it, of it almost as like activation energy, right? Like mm-hmm. there's so many different ways you could go, but you got to get out there. You got to do different things. You got to sort of position yourself to, you know, find the right opportunities. And then, of course, you have to recognize op- those opportunities. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, Dave. So, that, like, I, I want to switch gears and I want to dive into um, what you're doing now at GigaMune. Um, let's let's start with wh- where cell and gene therapies are today. Yeah. We've, we've seen some great advances in the treatment of hematological cancers, rare genetic disorders, for example. So I, want, I, I do just want to take a minute and set the stage for our listeners to make sure we're all on the same page. So bear with me for, for one minute here. Yeah. Um, you know, as, as you know, Dave, right? the first wave of treatments approved by the FDA were CAR-T's. Uh, those were for hematological malignancies, such as acute lymphoblastic leukemia, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Those treatments have profoundly altered the treatment landscape because they've demonstrated both high overall response rates in the order of magnitude over 85% and durable remissions in patients who have otherwise failed standard therapies. So those were really game-changing technologies when they came out. You know, th- those are sort of roughly what I tend to categorize as, you know, generation one. Um, and let's not forget, the biotech companies that developed these first-generation products were both acquired. Right, Juno was bought by Celgene for $11.1 1 billion. Kite was bought by Gilead for $11.9 billion. <laughs> right? Then you fast forward a couple of years, right, and the FDA approved the very first gene therapy for an inherited genetic disease. Right? This one was called Luxturna yeah. uh, for an indication, uh, a, a, a very specific mutation associated with uh, a form of retinal dystrophy. Um, this was also, David, as you know, the first approved AAV gene therapy in the U.S. I believe that the CAR-Ts all use lentiviral vectors, and we'll get into more of, of the differenti- differentiators okay. there. Um, that technology and that, that therapy was developed by Spark, which of course was acquired by Novartis for $4.8 billion. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you're, you're you're seeing a common theme here, right? So fast forward again. There's another small biotech of Vexis developed a gene therapy for spinal muscular atrophy. They were acquired by Novartis for 8.7 billion. And then most recently in April this year, the FDA gave the green light to bluebird bios gene therapy for beta thalassemia, right? And so that was really exciting. I think that's a big inflection point as well. You know, as as you know, you know, all of these new therapies, as they've come to market, have also broken pricing records, right? Starting in the couple hundred thousand dollars for the CAR T's that were initially approved, now up to $2.8 million for bluebirds treatment. So, Dave, with all of that background. Right? How are these types of products currently produced today?
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a great intro. And I I think it's especially great to um, include cell therapy as a subset of gene therapy, which I don't think everybody necessarily does. But, you know, uh, obviously that's what it's all about. You're taking cells out of a patient and putting a gene in and then putting it back. It's a gene therapy, you know, so. Um, So yeah, I I appreciate all that. And and I also appreciate that it's, you know, an interesting inflection point in the market. You know, I think um, biotech's been about antibodies, you know, for for a long time, you know, a couple decades really. And I think we're at a turning point where different kinds of gene therapy are really gonna be the future. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, 15 years from now, antibodies aren't even made in bioreactors anymore, they're actually made as a gene therapy, which is delivered uh, in vivo, um, I, I, I just think there's going to be a real sea change there. This is basically all about how do you get the right gene to the right cell in, in the right place. And um, another thing to think about uh, is, uh, when I when I think about the, where the market has gone more recently, you know, these are these are firms that are kind of in the next generation. The emphasis has really been on how do you get the right gene to the right cell? Like I, like I mentioned, and those first ones that you mentioned, uh, so the cell therapies, for example, um, you know, from Kite and Juno, that's made using a lentivirus ex vivo. So in a lab, so you purify T cells and then you just put the lenti on. And so it doesn't really matter how specific the delivery vector is. Um, but for uh, uh, and, and then the same same for the AAV therapies that have been coming out. Um, but the next generation is all about how do you get very specific, efficient delivery of the gene to the right place, at the right time, and it's important for efficacy because you have to make sure you're getting the right the right gene to the right cell and the right amount, and then also safety. I mean, you don't want to give the wrong gene to the wrong cell um uh because you know certainly FDA is going to wonder what are the safety downsides of that um so very important to think carefully about that so i, I think the next wave of those billion dollar outcomes are going to be in that area um the 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 most of the work up till now has been in aav so there's a company called dyno for example there's another one called uh uh, uh capsidia uh sorry capsida or capsidia i can't remember um, there, there, there are several companies that are working on that uh, in AAVs, um, and you know I think there's definitely space for other kinds of platforms to come in and really kind of duke it out in the market. Um, but there's definitely opportunity I think for even even multiple kinds of platforms to win here.
1: So so let, let's talk about that, Dave. So let, let's let's turn to Gigamune. And, and and you know so you're working on in vivo targeted delivery methods that could you know theoretically replace existing cell and gene therapy methods could, at a high level. Could, could you talk about how your, your technology works? Uh,
2: yeah. Uh, well, actually, sorry, I didn't really totally address your, your cost issue. So let's, uh, let, let, me, let me address the cost issue and then get back to that. Sorry. I kind of, uh, missed that part point. So, um, yeah, the, the, the prices are, are, uh, of gene, of cell and gene therapies are, somewhat dictated by the market they're somewhat dictated by the cost of clinical studies but they're also dictated by the cost of manufacturing so for example let's say you know you you can get a price of one million dollars for a cell therapy and it's fairly you know extremely efficacious and safe still to manufacture that and this this doesn't even include all the clinical trial costs this is just like what it costs to manufacture that is typically in the 300 to $400,000 range, uh, at least based on information that we have. So uh, now of course you're making several hundred thousand dollars every time you make a sale. Um, so that's good for pharma, but it's not a great profit margin. And then of course the market needs to bear these high prices, which means that not as many people are getting them, these therapies as they should, right? Um, so, okay, so so that's, that's basically the problem statement. Um, uh we're working on a, a type of gene delivery vector called lentivirus. And I think, um, you know, we talked about this earlier, lentivirus is the, the vector that's used to deliver genes ex vivo to, uh, to T cells, which then becomes these cell therapies for, um, for, for B cell malignancies. And, and that's kind of the paradigm at this point. Is to take cells out of a patient, engineer them with the gene, and then ship them back to the patient, and then and then and then deliver the cells uh, uh, to the patient. Um, those vectors are designed in a way. There, there's a there's a protein which is called a pseudotype. Which is sorry, I'm getting technical jargon here, but the what the pseudotype does in the in the lentivirus vector is it. It basically is the machinery that binds to the target cell. And it's also the machinery that, that fuses to the target cell and delivers the gene internally. And the, the pseudotype that's being used for the lentivirus right now is, is, is one where it, it has a generic specificity. So basically what the protein does is it docks to uh, a protein which is expressed on every cell. And that's convenient in a lot of ways uh, because you don't have, you know, you can develop a lentivirus that works for any cell, but there's a problem too. It, it, you know, it's okay if you just purify T cells and you wanna deliver them to every T cell, but what if you had a mixture of T cells and say B cells and macrophages, and you only wanted to deliver to T cells, then it's not gonna work, okay? So we're looking at that problem, and um, the, the 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 way that we're looking at it is using a genomics and bioinformatics approach. So uh, these proteins that are used as pseudotypes are viral proteins. The one that's been used historically is uh, you know just something that was picked out early on in the in the history of biotech and. There's a lot more out there. Uh, So we did a sequence search, um, large scale, you know, on the cloud and sequenced, you you know, looked for many, many trillions of bases of of material to to find new pseudotypes. And we found a couple hundred uh, or so and uh, started testing them in the lab. And the features that we're looking for in the lab are uh, we, we wanted to be able to pair the pseudotypes with an antibody. And so this allowed, again, bear me with the other technical here. So we're trying to use an engineering approach where the antibody is what shuttles the the lentivirus to the right cell, a specific cell type. So if you have a T cell, there's markers on the T cell where, where you can design antibodies against them. And they're very specific uh, to that T cell. And then, and then the pseudotype, doesn't bind to the T cell or anything else, maybe because it's a very divergent, you know, viral protein, it's nothing to do with any human protein, but it does allow a delivery of the gene internally inside the cell. So it's sort of like a you know a logic gate, right? Where you have you have to have both the, the antibody binding and the delivery uh, of the of the gene. And, and they're they're enabled by different proteins. If you so if you just added the antibody to the normal pseudotype, then it might help a little bit with specificity, but not a lot. Um, and so what you really need to do is find something that that needs the antibody in order to deliver to the cell at all. Um, I hope that I hope that's fairly clear. Um, uh, I know it's fairly technical, and it's always uh, something that's better if you see a diagram or a figure or something. Um,
1: but that- no, no, Dave, that's that's great. That's great. I mean, we're not afraid of getting technical on, on the okay. show. So, okay, okay. No, that's super helpful. So, one one clarifying question. So then, it, it sounds like the the lentiv- the lentiviral pseudotypes that you're using are all naturally occurring versus you engineering them to confer some specificity. But I, I just want to make sure I got that right.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's right. And and that's uh, pretty different from, for example, the AAV techniques that are being used. So, so most of the companies that are working on AAVs, as far as I know and understand, um, are making uh, mutated libraries of AAVs. And so they're artificial sequences, which are uh, you know, designed into the capsids of the, of the viruses. Um, this approach is, is, uh, yeah, trying to leverage, uh, natural sequences that there, there is some chance that we'll end up, you know, trying to engineer them, but I usually get the sense that natural sequences are, you know, if you can get them to work, it's always better, <laughs> you know, because you, you know, nature has a way of making things that, that work well. Um, and of course there's always, you know, downsides to, you know, there's something called immunogenicity. And you always have to worry that you're well everybody knows immunogenicity these days because of covid right <laughs> um and uh, and so um you know you if you're using these vectors in vivo you want to be sure that they're not super immunogenic because that can obviously cause safety problems so you know there's a there's a yin and yang there but yeah i usually do like to use naturally occurring uh, uh proteins um so
1: yeah yeah and and I want to I want to get back to sort of the state of the overall in vivo yeah. gene therapy market. But but before I do, I mean your your approach, you know, it seems like it would open up new applications that are not currently possible or practical with how things are done today. Is is that is that if that is a fair assessment? How, how how so?
2: Yeah, uh, it, it I guess it depends on what you're really. I, I, I guess if for the most part, you would make that statement, and you would be in comparison to AAV because yeah. that's where almost all the clinical trials are for in vivo gene therapy. Um, and, and I think for there, there's probably a lot of um, clinical applications where AAV is, is best, right? Or you know, or maybe the same <laughs> as using as using a lentivirus. Um, but there are certain things that that. We think we'll be able to do, which I think would be hard with AAV. Uh, so first of all, AAV has a pretty hard set limitation in gene payload size, and so 4.5 kilobases is typically considered the the you know the the max gene size that you can deliver. And it works for a lot of genes, uh, but other genes, you know, I think dystrophin for muscular dystrophy is the is the classic example um way too big for um uh for A V. So investigators in that area are are doing you know RNAI methods, for example, or they're doing something called a microdystrophin, which is like a truncated dystrophin. And none of those have have worked great. You know, I, I think they, they, there have been some approvals, but you know generally the efficacy isn't that high. Um, so certainly having a bigger payload will help. Um, and then uh, another area, uh, uh, which I think is pretty interesting, um, is uh, is of course the the cell type specificity of an antibody. Um, it's kind of hard to compare apples to apples against AAV. Um, but what I've what I've heard through the grapevine is that for certain cell types, um, engineering AAVs has been really challenging, um, and so. If you're and, and if the method there is just to make a, a big random library and then screen for uh, specificity against the, a cell, um, well, it, it may work, but if you if you have an engineering approach, you can design an antibody against a specific cell target on that cell, and then you really understand where it's going and why. And you can also understand the off-target specificity really well too, because you can just look at where that target protein is expressed, what other cells that's, that target protein is expressed in. Um, so that's a big advantage. So I think for certain kinds of uh, indications where you want that specificity, that's, that's a big deal. Um, and then uh, this is kind of a, a, a new thing that we uh, have recently been investigating in the lab um, but again, kind of in the technical weeds here, but lentivirus is, is it's, a, it's, it's what we call a vesicular virus. So a vesicle is something that buds off of a cell and basically like pinches the cell membrane off, off from the cell. So when, when lentivirus is manufactured, there's a host cell and you, you introduce a bunch of genes into the host cell. And then they kind of uh, bleb off from the from the host cell. Every protein that's expressed on the cell membrane of the host cell has a chance of being on the lentivirus. And so your your antibodies that that you express recombinantly are there, and, and your your pseudotype, and that's how you get into the cell. But you can also put other stuff in there. And 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 you know, the 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 interesting discovery we had here is um, there's a target on T cells called CD3. And and CD3 for people who've been in biotech for a while is a uh it's a it's a target that people have been interested in modulating as a way to activate T cells for a long time. And when we used uh CD3 antibodies for targeting the T cells, they also activated, which was really interesting, right? So so you, you had this, you had you had delivery of the, of, the, of the gene, the transgene to the right cell specifically, but then you also activated the T cell. And so what we've been exploring and we're interested to do a lot more are ways that you can activate T cells, keep them from becoming what we call exhausted um, by delivering certain signals on the lentivirus itself uh, to to activate the, the T cells, um, so kind of an interesting area which would again be really hard to do using other kinds of platforms like um, AAVs and you know, other people interested in in vivo are doing with the nanoparticles like the Moderna vaccines. Um, and uh, uh, so I, I think again we, we you know there, there's a there's a toolbox here that I think um, is evolving. And, and, I, and the one area where there has been really little innovation to date is lentivirus, uh, because we've kind of been using the same sort of designs that have been used for a long, long time. Um,
1: Yeah, Dave, that's great. And and I do, I want to go back in a minute and and talk about some of the uh, other in vivo, you know, clinical data that has been generated over the recent years. But you did, you did mention a really important point that I want to pick up on first. And that is there are a number of therapies in development or even that have been approved at this point that offer cell free delivery of genetic material and don't rely on viral vectors, right? You mentioned one, lipid nanoparticles or LNPs. Right, and just for our audience, right, this is the technology, for example, that the mRNA vaccines use to get the mRNA into the cells, right. So without the LNPs as a delivery vehicle, which by the way that technology had been in development for decades, right, the, all the COVID vaccines, at least the mRNA-based ones, wouldn't work, right, because you can't get the mRNA into the cells. So you talk a little bit then about how your approach maybe differs from LNPs or these lipid, lipid nanoparticles or other types of cell-free delivery methods.
2: I, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't, I don't know the history cause it, it predates my, my, uh, activity in the field, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody at some point looked at, at lentivirus and other kinds of vesicular viruses and said, Hey, maybe I can do that whole thing artificially <laughs> because, because, uh, uh, basically an LNP is, yeah, it's a lipid membrane. It works kind of like a cell membrane. Um, It's just something that's, that's fully artificially manufactured. uh, Whereas a lentivirus uses cell machinery and there, you know, there's some, even though it's, it's made recombinantly, there's some, uh, uh, you know, there's some relationship with nature, whereas LMPs are are not, you know, but, but they, they do, you know, these are vesicles that, uh, that, that holds RNAs um, to, to get them to the right cells. Um, the, the downside, of course, is that, you know, again, going back to the original uh, uh, statement that if you could be close to the nature, it's usually better. Um, these particles, uh, where, whereas I, I think the vesicular viruses have evolved to figure out how to persist, persist in vivo and get to the right places in vivo and do the right things. LNP's are are pretty much immediately recognized as foreign, and that's why they're taken up by the liver and macrophages uh, preferentially, and and that's great for a vaccine because you get quick and brief uh, expression of the antigen, and you know, for example, a COVID antigen. Um, but if you're trying to make an in vivo cell therapy, that's not necessarily what you want because it's not going to the right cells, and then and then it's also uh, pretty transient. Um, you know, of course, uh, people who are really, um, know about the field, uh, there are some companies out there who have recently got funded. Um, there's one called capstan to do exactly what we're discussing here to do in vivo cell therapies using LNPs. Um, they're affixing antibodies to the surface of the LNP and then, and then delivering as far as I know, uh, RNAs. Um, so, you know, like I said, there's, there's going to be a lot of different ways that are tried to do this sort of thing. Um, I think, um, obviously we love our approach and there's a lot of advantages. I I think, uh, companies like Capstan, they sure have a ton of money, so, um, you know, uh, they're going to give it a go. Um, so yeah. And, and of course they're benefiting from the, the, the incredible manufacturing infrastructure that came with the. COVID pandemic. I mean, it's nice that they can leapfrog off of that, you know, um, that, that, that would have been a hard company to start, I think, four years ago. <laughs> it's oh, just, that, absolutely. People <laughs> have been like what are these things? I know Moderna is doing that, but they're not even, you know, have a product yet, you know, and, and so it would have felt pretty, pretty out there. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and by the way, I, I think the timing is good for a Lenti You know on that note too because um there's a lot of manufacturing infrastructure uh for cell therapy lenti, uh specifically and so uh the it's not like uh anybody doing next gen lenti starting from scratch and trying to commit some uh manufacturing site to do something they've never heard of before so
1: yeah, no, it makes sense, and and so Dave, I I want to pick up on that thread about you know th- there are other companies that are pursuing in vivo gene therapy, right? So this is still relatively new, but not entirely novel, and and there has been some clinical data over the recent years, and so uh, j- just briefly, right, the first company to deliver clinical results, as you're probably aware, was Sangamo Therapeutics, and In in 2019, they had data from those a phase one slash two trial uh their technology was based on what they call zinc finger nucleases or zfns and you know, it was basically a different version of CRISPR. and and i think they were in the clinic for uh for Hunter's syndrome and i think that tr- trial ultimately wasn't successful and didn't move forward because as the ceo at the time said they couldn't get enough of the gene editing components into every cell right so very much a a delivery and sounds like specificity problem more recently, as, as I'm sure you're aware, right, Intelia Therapeutics is, to my knowledge, the second company to test in vivo gene therapies in a clinical setting. Uh, this time, though, the trial was hailed as a major success. I think shares of Intelia serves like 52% on the news. And and so in my mind, that was really the first ever clinical data suggesting that you can precisely edit and target cells uh, you know, within the body in an in vivo you know fashion to treat genetic disease. Um and that was based on a single intravenous infusion of, of CRISPR, um, and and then tell the Intel pretty much you know said 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 those words at at the time of, of the press release. You know how circling back to your technology, what's out there, LNP's, these other approaches, right? How do you see your technology fitting into the competitive landscape, right? Are there certain applications or indications that may be more suited to one versus the other, for example? Uh yeah yeah I, I you know first I, w- I just want to address the we hadn't really talked
2: about CRISPR and gene editing much in this conversation yet uh, I guess I think we might have alluded to it a little bit um, but I, I think it's really interesting I mean there's been so much effort going into editing genomes and you know really good at doing it in test tubes we're really good at doing it to so like you know mouse embryos or. Or, or whatnot, but, but for a human, um, you know most of the editing has been limited to most of the clinical studies have been limited to, for example, retinal disease, where you inject the editing components into the eye. Um, so then you're, you know you're obviously locally getting it so you know you're getting the right stuff to the right area. Um, and then other methods are taking cells out and engineering them, editing them somehow, and then and then putting them back into, into the patients. Um, and I went to a, a conference uh, uh, earlier this year where uh, you know there's few companies out there discovering novel cas proteins, and you know they're they've got these amazing IP footprints where they've they've discovered all kinds of novel cast proteins. And and what the, the CEO of this company said was well we're so good at editing stuff, but we still have this delivery problem. We don't know necessarily how to get the right, uh, the the right machinery to the right cells. And, you know, and he kind of just left it at that. He didn't even propose (laughs) any, any nothing. I was kind of in the audience like, Oh, okay. I'm kind of feel like I'm going in the right direction here. Yeah. Did did you raise Um, your hand? (laughs) Yeah. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't, I did not, but, but yes, it was, it was, it, it was, um, uh, attempting to, to to do that. Hey, I'm working on something. Um, but uh, yeah. Uh, uh, okay, so so, um, where do we fit into the competitive landscape in terms of applications? Uh, yeah, so this was kind of hard. Um, uh, you know, for my last company, and also for Natera, I think it was really clear what the product line and order was going to be. And and part of it was because we were replacing um existing dogma in a way. You know, we were replacing products that, you know, for like for for non-invasive prenatal, we were we were replacing uh, uh amniocentesis, right? So it was easy to not easy, but anyways, it was it it, it it there there was a path where we could study amnio and figure out how we were gonna really uh, make a difference in that, in that field. Um, uh, and, and what was the benefit to patients? What was the benefit to doctors? That sort of thing. Um, I look at this project similarly, um, although there's some complexities. Um, I do think that, um, uh, uh CD19 as a target. So these are B, B cell malignancies is a great target. It's a great, uh, uh, you know, test case. Um, I, I think we will pursue it. Um, anybody listening is not going to be surprised to hear that I've heard that it, it can be difficult to accrue clinical studies in that area just because it's so active and so competitive. Um, so we are looking at other indications which are, you know, there, there's activity and they're fairly competitive, but not quite that bad. So, so AML, is one area that I think is pretty interesting. Um, there are several uh, cell therapies in, in the works, um, but there's a lot of complexity there. Um, you know, Long story short, uh, for most AML, you get small molecules. Um, they work pretty well for two years, if, especially if you're older. Uh, you eventually have remission, and then, and then most patients where they're eligible will get stem cell transplant. Usually that fails within a few years. Um, and, and, and most of the, the cell therapies that are coming up are coming up after the, the failure of the stem cell transplant. Um, but, and there, and the reason for that is because, you know, you, you can't do the cell therapy and the stem cell transplant at the same time. It's just too complicated, um, but you can imagine doing a G in vivo gene therapy at the same time as a stem cell transplant. Um, so those are the kinds of opportunities I think where we're really studying and interested because they allow you to kind of, you know, get, get in the, get your foot in the door in a way, uh, before, uh, before cell therapy competitors could even do. Um, and, and so you're really opening something up, which is like qualitatively different and enabling and not just like cheaper to make <laughs> right if that makes sense so i i think that's pretty important too i had um we we had sequoia as as one of our investors in uh into the terra and they're great investors and they always have these sort of like you know things that they say that really stick with you right and and one thing uh, two two things that 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 this guy rolf Botha, who's who's one of the lead guys at sequoia said to me was okay, well, first thing you can't fix is a is a small market. <laughs> so, so, you know, he's like, don't believe people who say they're gonna like grow a market because it's pretty much never happens, right? So <laughs> if you have a small market, you got a small market. And, and that's that. So um, he also said never compete on cost. Um, uh, and, and so that's an interesting thing that's really stuck with me. And and why you don't compete on cost is because then you come become commoditized, right? So when, when, I, when I think about um, this statement that I'm reducing the cost of cell therapy, it's not just to like, induce the pricing pressure of that, it's actually to, uh, to go after indications which just aren't even possible right now because of cost constraints, right? And so, and so there's an existing AML market, you know, it's there, people get sick and they're dying. And so, you know, if you can improve that, it's going to, it's going to be paid for. Um, But stem cell transplants are already really expensive. So to, to snap in, you know, a a $2 million uh, cell cell therapy is just, just forget it. Right. And so, so you have, so in this case, you know, the, the cost enables a, a market in a way that, that you wouldn't have had otherwise, if that makes sense.
1: Um, yeah, no, it makes makes total sense, and and you know I think that's that's one of the reasons why I like I personally am so excited about the promise of, of what you're building and and the sort of the technology platform and your approach. Um, maybe actually this is probably a good segue into sort of taking a step back, looking at the company from sort of a thirty thousand foot view. Right in light of the the platform nature of the technology, different directions that you can go in. I mean, how are you thinking about your overall strategy for the company? Is it are you thinking about this more as building sort of a platform company, partnering, you know, licensing out different areas, whether they're you know different indications or therapeutic areas or whatever? Or are you thinking about developing this more in the lines of a traditional therapeutics company where you're, you know, running hard to, you know, get your first candidate into the clinic and sort of, you know, really running hard at with, you know, one or two assets to get to clinical results?
2: Yeah, uh, I think for, for this current company, I think a, a, a mixed approach is really, is really the best way to do it. And also in the current environment, <laughs> um, I, I think gone are the days of 2021 and maybe in 2020 where you know you could fog a mirror. And, and I, I'm just joking, obviously, but you know you could fog a mirror and raise you know a billion dollars is a joke. It's it's not entirely true, but but sure that that environment was different. And so if you can if you can raise a billion dollars and and you feel like you could just build the infrastructure and get the cash that you need to go forward you know, maybe you should do that. Um, I think in the current environment, uh, you know, it makes a lot of sense to try to go out and partner, uh, as soon as we can, you always have a risk of giving up your crown jewels if you do that. And that's always a challenge. You always hear horror stories of companies that gave up their first product and that was the only good one they ever had. Right. And, you know, they, and they gave it away for terms that, that, you know, were kind of a steal. Um, but you know, I, I think that's the environment that we're in. Um, uh, so, so looking opportunistically at partnering early would be great. Um, but we are definitely also interested in developing our own clinical products. Uh, kind of a mixed, a mixed approach. Um, and uh, the uh, 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 the other thing I really like about these approaches, you know, again, it is the market we're in, and I think that is what it is, and you have to make do. But it is neat to get to uh, big pharma potential partners early. And why? Because they're smart, (laughs) because they they have experience, they know how to do stuff. And, and, you know, and and, and of course, you know, uh, I think it's our job in the in the in the startup arena to to just really push and innovate. and, And maybe there isn't as much motivation to do that in big pharma but they also know how to do a lot of stuff, you know, manufacturing, clinical studies. They know a lot about markets. They have competitive Intel that we don't have. Um, and so so working with a big pharma is, I think is always exciting and has a lot, uh, there's, there's a lot of benefits to that uh, beyond just cash. Well, like, oh, cash is great, of course, but uh, there's other goodies that you can get. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, Dave, you mentioned the the, the current market environment and obviously drastically different than, you know, like a, a year ago, for sure. But, you know, I, I would also argue, you know, as an in, as an investor or as a company builder, you know, actually, now's a great time to build a company. Now's a great time to build an investor. I mean, some of the some of the, you know, household names that we all know were built during economic downturns. Right. I mean, it, it forces you to really prioritize and take a hard look at, you know, how you're spending and what you're spending um, and, and those sort of critical, critical decisions, which you should always be looking at, but maybe uh, you're not forced to as much during the, you know, the, the go-go periods when, when cash is uh, <laughs> abundant,
2: in the go-go periods, a lot of a lot of crazy things happen. Um, you know, for example, investors push you to go really fast and then you end up hiring bad teams or teams that don't work well together or they don't get trained, they don't get cohesive. You end up, um, there's a lot of companies that IPO'd and, and clearly shouldn't have, and they're trading below cash, you know? And, and that's, you know, this is not good for anyone, you know, um, and so they're going to have a hard time um and then you know in markets like today uh there's there's just there's just benefits right like there's there's gonna be more people to hire you can build a team more slowly um get the right people in place um you can uh, wait around and find the right investors you know like things like 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 you know if i, if I don't feel like i need the ipo in six months um then you know, maybe I can wait another couple of months to find a good investor rather than one who's, you know, an investor who's not necessarily the right fit, you know. Um, So yeah, and I can spend time talking talking to doctors, I can spend time talking to pharma, just a lot of things that you wouldn't necessarily be able to if you're a go, 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 get to Wall Street kind of approach, right?
1: Yeah, and and all those things I think are incredibly important. And you know, for you as you're thinking about building your company, you know this, right? But finding the right set of investors is is critically important Uh, because because it is like a marriage, right? I mean, you're 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 in it for the long term with with those partners, so. But, you know, Dave, with that, I know we could probably spend another three days talking about all these t- topics. I, I do, I do want to be cognizant of your time. I want to sort of circle back. You know, I, I sort of you asked you this question before, but, you know, given your experience as, as a sure entrepreneur, you know, you gave some advice, you know, i.e. maybe stay in your day job if you can, um, to, to, to new entrepreneurs. But, you know, anything else that you, you know, might say in terms of advice or, you know, resources for, you know, folks that are looking to take that, you know, entrepreneurial journey or, or are already sort of deep in it.
2: Uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, what are, what are some things I sort of mentioned? Uh, so uh, one is, is, uh, you know, find your, find your sweet spot between being kind of, uh, you know, bullheaded and, and like, you know, you know, going really hard in the direction that you believe in, but also keeping your ears open and listening and being willing to pivot. I think that's so hard, right? Because, because if you pivot too much then you just never move forward. Right. Because, you know, you're getting all kinds of conflicting advice all the time. And, and so you can't listen to it all. And then, you know, some people will say, well, he should have listened to me. Right. It's like, well, but I also had 10 other guys telling me the opposite. Right. And so, so you have to somehow figure out a way to sort through the noise and come to your own wisdom. And if you do pivot, you know, uh, you, you'd better be really sure about it because you can't you can't keep doing that all the time. <laughs> you have to you have to pick a pick a you know handful of pivots and maybe that that's all you're gonna get. Um, and so and then the other advice I always have is you know pick your team and your advisors and your investors really carefully. You know you you always hear um, you know the, just. Horror stories about companies. They had a terrible board. You're like, why do they have a terrible board? Well, you know, the, the VCs wanted some gray hairs in there, and they found some gray hairs, and they were, you know, it's like the it's the the um, uh, Theranos drawn right, like that, like terrible board, right? Looked good on paper, maybe, but terrible board. Um, and then, and then, you know, obviously picking your advisors carefully. I, I like to. Um, <laughs> I think you you could tell by my advice, like your day job kind of thing right like i i tend to be really blunt about my advice and and you know it, that's not always going to be for everyone but i still think every advisor is only as good as like what you know if, if they're not going to tell you the truth or be afraid of that or always just kind of agree what you say like what are they there for you know they're not your cheerleader necessarily although a little bit of that helps you know um and same with employees like i have a Uh, a really careful process for picking employees Uh, i think it's really important well and co-founders too it's really important to find people who you know balance you out and and who fit kind of a a culture that you need um i know some people are snarky about culture (laughs) and just like it shouldn't matter you know find the best technologists that you can find it's like it's not true you know you have to get along, you know, um, and, and you have to complement each other. You kind of have to work in the same way, um, you know. So, yeah, I, don't know. I, I guess I have a lot of advice for entrepreneurs, hopefully. <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah. that's <laughs> no, that, that, that's all great. And, and when I can really echo, you know, the, the point about advisors and, you know, you don't, you don't want them sugarcoating that, you know, anything. And it goes for your team, too. I mean, the most productive companies and teams I've been associated with really engage in positive conflict productively, right? Not everyone agrees on everything, but you, you have the courage and you have the, the respect among your peers to engage in thoughtful disagreement. And that is, in my mind, just invaluable.
2: It's so important, right? Uh, you know, um, <laughs> let's say I, uh, let's say things are going wrong in the lab and, and I asked to see your protocol, right? Like the worst thing you can do as the employee is say, you don't trust me? <laughs> it's like, it's just like, you gotta be kidding me, right? Like, like and, and we've had that before and, and usually those are, those are people who don't have being good scientists, right? Because you, you have to understand that the manager is only trying to help and, and, and is like pouring their life into this. And, you know, and of course, as a manager too, you always have to, <laughs> you have to be delicate about that sort of thing too, right? Like, like don't, don't point fingers or anything, but, but yeah, you're right. And so, so you have to build that trust, but it's always going to be, there's always going to be things that come up and you have to be willing to all kind of go in together and get to the truth get to discovery figure out how to solve it and if you if you can't you're just not going to get anywhere I, I totally agree with that so there is certain there's a certain personality i look for um when i go through interview processes, and I I, I kind of stress test those things. I definitely do. And,
1: and obviously, you have the track record where you, you've done it successfully in the past. So, Dave, I think we, we better leave it there. So, David Johnson, founder and CEO of Gigimmune. Dave, thank you so much for uh, for joining the show today.
2: Thanks for having me. It's been really fun.
1: Well, Neil, what did you think? I thought that was a great conversation with uh, with Dave. I, I was really excited to dig, in, dig into his technology uh, in more detail, you know, you heard us talk a lot about and compare and contrast what he's doing at Kigamune G- G- compared to, you know, what has been done in the past in the field of cell and gene therapy, uh, what the state of the market is today, how he differentiates from what the other in vivo gene therapy approaches are today. Um, and that, and you heard us talk about some of the clinical data. So while this is, this is new and this is novel. Right. There is clinical proof of concept for what he's doing. Um, I think the, the 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 pseudo the lentiviral pseudotypes that that they are using is really is really cool. You heard him talk a lot about this idea of that, you know, well, nature can engineer things you know much better than, than we can. So why not rely on nature? Which seems to make a lot of sense to me on the surface. So I'm really excited about what they're doing. One of the most
0: interesting parts of the conversation for me was. When he was speaking, you got this little glimpse of the entrepreneurial mind when he talked about the genesis for this company being in leftover parts that the buyer for his previous company wasn't interested in. What kind of insights did you get into his thinking there?
1: Yeah, I think it was really interesting. And, and so you heard me ask the question about his entrepreneurial journey and if there are any common themes between the Terra and Giga Jin. And now Gigamune. And it seemed like absolutely. Right. I mean, from his postdoc work at Stanford. Right. He was really sort of deep into a specific area of technology. Right. That served as a basis for a lot of the work he did in the Terra and the Terra. He got very deep and specific on, uh, you know, in a, in a certain aspect. And then, you know, that formed some of the basis for how he thought about Giga Jin. And then what they're doing at Giga that wasn't useful to the acquired Griffles, you know, sort of formed the basis for Giga Mune. So you can, you can see a common theme and how the sort of thinking has evolved and sort of, you know, moving, you know, pretty. I don't know what to say is directly sequentially, but in, in a pretty, you know, what seems like linear manner, manner from, you know, one thing to the next thing in terms of where he's gone in his career and the companies that he's, he's built. So it's, it's not like he just grabbed something out of thin air. It's all based on his experience and a problem he's tried to solve, you know, during his career has sort of led to something else. And the next thing, which I think is really cool. And I think to your point, speaks a lot to his mindset as an entrepreneur.
0: It's not hard to appreciate the promise of cell and gene therapies, but how do you see the obstacles limiting their benefits? Are you, will we just come to accept them, or do you think it's important to find ways to solve these?
1: No, I think it's incredibly important to figure out ways to solve these. I mean, you, you heard us talk about some of some of the challenges. Um and you know whether whether it's the cost of these products, right? Because manufacturing is is complex and and complicated and all those things, different patient populations, right? I mean, it's one thing to have a 2.8 million dollar therapy for a you know a very rare condition. You're not going to have a 2.8 million therapy for you know a, a a a much broader patient population, right? That'll break the healthcare system. So until we can figure out some some solutions that allow these therapies to work on a broader patient population, we're not really ever gonna realize the true potential of a lot of these therapies. So I think things like what what Dave is doing is is incredibly important. And no, I don't think we should ever be satisfied with how things are today. We should always look for how to Im- improve things and open up these therapies to new patient populations and new indications, because there's, there's a lot of unmet medical needs out there. And I think these things have broad applicability and I, I really do feel like we've just begun to scratch the surface of, of what's possible with these novel novel therapies.
0: The other thing he said that I, I found a little surprising was the advice he had gotten from a, a venture capitalist about not looking at cost as an advantage and not looking to grow the size of a small market because you won't be able to do that. It, it seems to me, though, that if he's successful in doing what he's doing, By nature, there'll be a cost advantage here that will grow the size of accessible markets.
1: Well, Danny, I I think that's right. And, you know, it's it's not just a venture capitalist who gave him that advice, but, you know, Rolf of of Sequoia is like one of the best in the business. Um, But, you know, to your point, so if you think about the existing market for cell therapies, right, it's like a $10 billion market today right? So it's an enormous market today. And that's expected to grow to, I think, like 40 or 50 billion, you know, within the next eight to 10 years. So, you know, I think what, what Dave is doing is really going to help open up and grow that market, right, four or five-fold over the next decade or so. Um, it's already an enormous market, but you heard us talk about some of, the, some of the different applications that he could pursue that maybe can't be pursued today, given some of the limitations of AAV or lentiviral vectors. And so, I think, you know, while that may not be his primary motivation, I think it's going to be an outcome of the technology being successful.
0: When you were talking to him about his partnering strategy, he indicated he would be interested in entering early on to a, a, a big pharma partnership. What do you think of that?
1: Uh, I mean, I'm all for that as as an investor, right? Not specifically in Gigamune, but just in general, right? I mean, I think... You know, you heard him talk a lot about the benefits of partnering with larger organizations, large pharma, you know, big biotech, whomever it may be. They have a whole suite of expertise that the startups don't have at their disposal, a whole suite of resources. Um, you know, it's it, it's 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 give and take, right? How much are you giving up for that for that benefit of of the partner? Um, you know, at the earliest stages, it also provides a lot of validation for the technology, right? So companies that are relatively young early on, you know, if they can secure that marquee partnership, right? I mean, that that is a lot of validation for the technology, social proof, it can often help companies raise capital, right? So there's a lot to be said, you know, not to mention, you know, having that partner in place can provide invaluable expertise to design I&D enabling studies, preclinical, clinical development plans, right? To you know, think about the target product profile. All of those things that are really important as you're, as you're designing, you know, the path forward for for you know whatever product you happen to be working on.
0: Well, until next time.
1: All right, thanks, Danny.
0: Thanks for listening. The Bioverge podcast is a product of Bioverge Inc., an investment platform that funds visionary entrepreneurs with the aim of transforming healthcare. BioVerge provides access and enables everyone to invest in highly vetted healthcare startups on the cutting edge of innovation, from family offices and registered investment advisors to accredited and non-accredited individuals. To learn more, go to BioVerge.com. This podcast is produced for BioVerge by the Levine Media Group. Music for this podcast is provided courtesy of the Jonah Levine Collective. All opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinion of BioVerge, Inc. or its affiliates. The participants' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither BioVerge or its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied on as such. Nothing contained in accompanying this podcast shall be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to purchase any security by BioBridge, its portfolio companies, or any third party. Past performance is not indicative of future results.